Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. All right, there we go. Huh. And of course, that's going to do that. Oh, that's the blinking you're talking about. Yeah, I told you it was really tough. It's really tough. Okay, so I want, I want to. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just start drinking. You gotta turn your phone off. It was, uh, it was, it was Mike. Okay, we're good. I'm, I'm gonna stop. I'm not gonna start drinking, but I'm close. Okay, <laughs> I want to introduce Joshua Renz uh, and Matthew Belando from Nova Signal. Now, both Joshua and Matthew are uh, RVTs, which are uh, registered vascular technologists. Joshua's primary role is as the medical education manager for Nova Signal. And um, uh, Matt is the senior clinical educator, uh, again, with Nova Signal. These guys are both highly skilled, highly experienced in the field of transcranial Doppler. And with me here today is Mike Sabayos. He is the senior <laughs> regional account manager Hello. with Nova Signal. And uh, he has a uh, tremendous uh, 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 amount of experience in the vascular and cardiovascular space. And it's a super, super guy. We're hoping we're gonna be able to bring in uh, Dr. Robert Hamilton, who is the chief scientific officer and co-founder of Nova Signal. But as I said recently, uh, earlier in the introductions, um, the Nova Signal is the first uh, autonomous transcranial Doppler system uh, that exists currently in the world. And um, uh, it has uh, some very unique characteristics that I think we can utilize in cardiac surgery. And just for our compliance purposes, um, these folks that are giving this lecture uh, today do work for, directly for, and are a co-founder of Nova Signal. However, the program nor myself uh, are receiving any kind of financial support uh, or any kind, I have any uh, financial interest in uh, this company. So those disclosures have been made. And with that said, I'm gonna turn this over to Josh, Matthew, and Mike, and let you guys go forward. I've got your slides here. So if you wanna just uh, say next, we will change the slides for you. And uh, mm -hmm. Josh, we're not getting your sound. Matt. Hello, can, hey, you hear can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Good, great, great. Thanks. I believe we don't see the slides yet. They don't see the slides yet. Magic? There. Perfect. Great. Great. All right. So this is, um, again, we're going to be going over transcranial Doppler, give you a brief introduction of TCV, that way you can uh, follow us as we go through and explain the use of this for 
um, interoperative monitoring. And we'll have a few a few case studies. You can go to the, the next slide. Please. Great. Uh, we already had an introduction on it. Uh, thank you for that. Um, the, that's the three of us here. Um, again, I won't go into the introductions as, as we just um, we just did that. Um, but both uh, Matt and myself have been doing transcranial Doppler. Continue to do it with uh, Nova Signal. Um, we're out in the field uh, weekly doing these studies uh, and monitoring these intraoperative cases. Uh, next slide. Great. So the the first set of slides here will go over the go over transcranial Doppler, a bit of the basics, kind of give you a history um, and the evolution of transcranial Doppler. Next slide. Great. Magic, could you turn the volume up a little bit so I can hear? Great. So transcranial Doppler has been around for about 40 years now. Uh, the 40th uh, year anniversary was just um, earlier this, this year. Transcranial Doppler provides a non-invasive method to assess the blood flow of the major conducting arteries uh, of the circle of um, It uses about a two megahertz probe and we look at, um, at these vessels through the temporal window um, with the ultrasound gel. I don't know if I have a bit of an echo there. I guess we'll continue to the next slide. Does, is that supposed to have a video? No video. There will be one video. Okay. Further in the so program. next slide. Gotcha. Yeah, great. Next slide. Thank you very much. Uh, so when we perform transcranial Doppler, there's three acoustic windows that we can use. We can see through the temporal window, which is at the side of the head. We can see through the orbital window um, or through the eye and the occipital window through the foramen magnum. So we can assess all the major conducting arteries of the um, brain. We'll go ahead and go to the next slide. Great. And so transcranial Doppler um, in, the, in the early ages just provided a waveform, which you see below. Um, more or less a typical waveform that you would see on any ultrasound, but this provides us with the basis um, to interpret um, the blood flow in the brain for a variety of diseases. Um, what we have here, and this is the technology that's used um, in the case studies that you'll see is uh, power MO. Um, a very basic description is uh, any blood coming towards the ultrasound uh, probe will be displayed in this depth depth graph, um, red coming uh, towards the probe and blue going away from the probe. You can kind of look at this uh, like a fish liner. So if they were looking in the water, any of the fish coming towards you would be blue, and any of the fish going away from you, sorry, towards you would be red, and any of the fish going away from you would be blue going into the ocean. Next slide. Great, here's a, a visual of how that works. And so the, the main artery, the middle super artery, which is coming towards the probe, is displayed as a big red band in the M mode display. Um, and this is important, we'll see um, this, the MCA is the main artery that we use to um, monitor in these intraoperative cases. Um, the power M mode is a very, very sensitive method for finding blood flow. So this helps us find the window. So the window is the area um, over the transtemporal uh, bone that is thin that we can see through. Um, the color bands help, helps us identify which vessel we're looking at. Um, and it also accounts for varying head sizes. Uh, 
if the head is bigger, the, the vessel will be at different depths. And power end load is also very, very sensitive to the detection of both emboli, air emboli, and particular emboli like electrons. Next slide. Great. This is a description of the transcranial Doppler waveform. Basically, gives us the blood flow velocities. And so, um, just as the heartbeat, we can look at the systolic and diastolic components of the blood flow to the brain. We can measure the cardiac cycle, basically one beat from the next. And it also gives us the amplitude of the signal, which corresponds to how many red blood cells there are in these vessels. So, that's a, a good way to more or less give us a sense of perfusion of the brain. Go to the next slide. Uh, pulsatility index is another metric that is provided, um, which is calculated from the velocity itself. Uh, pulsatility index gives us a sense of the resistance uh, that the brain has to the blood flow. Um, there are normal values range from about 0.8 to 1.2. Again, this is going to be uh, very relevant during the intraoperative monitoring cases, especially. Um, this helps us determine if there is a disease proximal to the area that we're looking at or distal to the air. And there's a bit of a correlation between the fertility index and waveform morphology, which is describing how the waveform looks itself. Next slide. Right, so waveform changes. One of the most powerful things in diagnostic imaging alone um, is recognizing normal values or um, what normal is. And that um, is very well the case for transcranial Doppler. So as you pictured here, the first image there is the uh, waveform of the middle cerebral artery, and this is the normal waveform. Uh, one thing to note is what we call the upstroke is portion um, during systole, and that is um, usually straight um, when the vessel is normal. When there is increased resistance to the brain, we get increased PI, which is pictured in the bottom left. Basically, we get a very sharp waveform. If there is a proximal obstruction to the we're looking at, we would get decreased pulsatility index or delayed upstroke rounding of the waveform. And these make it pretty obvious at times to describe um, particular pathologies that may be occurring. Next slide. Great. So, applications of transhumanal doctor, there are many. Um, the list goes on and on. This is just a small portion of it. Um, the advantages of transcranial Doppler are that it's non-invasive. Um, we can continuously monitor so there is no harm using ultrasound. It can be done at the bedside with care, um, and there is no radiation. Um, for diagnostic testing, um, some of the most common applications are sickle cell disease, um, patent pyramidal valley testing, and um, using TCD for um, subarachnoid hemorrhage to detect invasive spasm. And then monitoring, more or less, monitoring can be, be done for anyone who has a stroke or had a potential stroke. So some of the more common uses are um, for monitoring for emboli. So if someone has carotid disease, um, we like to see if they're embolizing from that plaque in the carotid artery. Um, cerebral vasoreactivity. So this is a way that we can test to see how much reserve uh, the brain has to accept blood flow. Um, and also intraoperative monitoring, which we'll go into more in the next few slides. Next slide. Great. So again, 40 years of transcranial Doppler. Um, here are some uh, 
features and, and the timeline of what the devices look like. Um, pretty archaic in the beginning. Very large computer which uh, provided um, a waveform um, to look at, so no imaging. Um, before this, um, it was actually just the sound that was used, and so there was no image. Um, they would just use the frequencies and changes of frequencies to determine if there was uh, any pathology. Um, as the timeline goes on, not many changes toward the 40 years. Uh, we moved from analog to digital, which will provide us with uh, more capabilities. Um, but nonetheless, there's not much uh, change in the ability to, to get you know, the same data from the beginning till, till more recently. Next slide. Take a look at the progression of, of automation. So uh, I think maybe about 10 years ago or so, we had robotically assisted devices. So these are ultrasound probes that basically have the ability to angle around once placed in one particular uh, position. Um, and now, today we have full automation, which was mentioned a little bit earlier, the mobile guide system, which is um, autonomous, fully robotic, and has um, five degrees wow. of motion, which means it has the ability to, to actually move around the head and find the signals. Uh, next slide, please. Great, so uh, current state, so this is what's available today for use. Again, we have the manual robotic headset. Each one of these requires uh, placement of the robotic probe and acquisition of the signal before they are used to actually monitor and, and maintain the signals. Um, and then lastly here, we have the mobile guide system, which uh, moves around. We have a video in a bit here that will show you exactly how that works. So you can appreciate the difference. Um, next slide. Great. So uh, artificial intelligence, everyone's favorite word these days. Um, this is one of the reasons why this technology is so successful. Um, we have the ability to take um, tons of data sets and apply them to this technology. Um, kind of a, a bit more basic way of describing this, like you know, ga gathering thousands and thousands of patients' data, we're, we're able to calculate and tell exactly where um, the window will be for us to find the, the cerebral blood flow. Um, and this information can be used uh, for the ro robot to make decisions on where to look and how to maintain the Okay. Next slide. Great, uh, along with, uh, with you know advances in technology, uh, computing power, we also have the ability to um, stream and send all this data to the cloud. And so these exams can now be remotely viewed uh, live during the exam, um, which um, was possible in the past, but it was usually um, very isolated. So this would take a, a hospital that had a system in place that they could actually stream, um, stream this, uh, stream these exams with with probably some latency, and so they weren't quite live. Um, but now we have the technology to do that. This really expands the use um, of, of the technology. Um, the robotics itself allow anybody to use it, and then the cloud really gives us um, access to, to experts and physicians around the world who can um, watch an exam live and provide help 
help that way. Go to the, the next slide here. Great, so this is the video. This will show you uh, how the robotic is set up and used. If someone go ahead and start that video. I'm trying. Yeah, no worries. Um, so there is. Uh, it's not a video. Not a video. <laughs> it is not. Yeah, it's not a video on my uh, on this. Hmm. Let me yeah, see. It should, it should be a video. Let me see. Um, if we can make this work, give me a second to see if I can figure it out. This is this, and this is slide 17. Let me see. 16, 17. Yes, it, it is a video. Can we... Um, can you uh, do me a favor? Uh, can we switch to my computer to for uh, instead of the instead of the uh, iPad? Yeah, I have my laptop. No. I can't share the laptop. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. So we'll just keep talking, Josh, and let me uh, see if I can yeah, figure fine. this out. <laughs> that's fine. Um, um, I, can, I can kind of go over what we're seeing in the, the image here, but this is the, the Nova Guide robotic system. Um, it's a car-based system, so that can be transported throughout the hospital. Um, the head cradle and the robots are on the bed, as you can see, placed there. That's where the patient will, will lie. Um, and then those pro-pods, where you can see the ultrasound probe, those can move around the full range of the transtemporal area. And so once the patient is set up, it, we simply just slide those pods. There we go. That got tricked there. But once the pods are pressed against the head, it's, it's fully automated and will switch around. This is really relevant because for the last 40 years, this had to be done manually. Um, and the learning curve for transcranial Doppler is very, very steep and very, very long. On average, it takes about um, about the whole year for someone to be really trained in transcranial Doppler, um, at, which requires that somebody who's an expert at a center to train them uh, during that period of time. Um, it is physically hard to do, and it's, it becomes complex when there's pathology. Um, and the pathology isn't always seen uh, from day to day, so it can, take, um, it can take quite some time for you to see a particular pathology, and this is where the, the pitfalls usually, usually um, fall. And so the ability to, for anybody to be able to put on a robotic system, get the data, and then stream that to experts, really expedites the learning process and reduces that learning curve drastically. And so what took years can literally take uh, weeks, um, definitely not uh, anywhere near as long as Still working on the video. Uh, Matt, yeah, we're any? not gonna, Josh, we're not gonna get the video. No video? Just, just yeah, move, no, you gotta no move worries. on. Yeah, that's, this that's has uh, been a tough day. I'm sorry. It's all right. So the, 
So the video simply just showed a patient lying in there and moving around and find, finding beautiful signals all on its own. Um, it's easy to describe, so we can move on to the, the next slide. And I can speak to these to Josh. Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Josh, for setting us up with the basic history of, of TCD. Um, here we have a, a slide that, that breaks down the, the risk of stroke for different procedures. So with perioperative stroke, it is the most unwanted complication for patients as well as for the surgeons and the anesthesiologists. As you can see on this chart, the incident of perioperative stroke um, depends on the type and complexity of the surgical procedure that's being performed. Uh, with the general or peripheral vascular surgery, you can see the incident of stroke is, is generally not that high. It goes from about 0.1 uh, to 3%. However, stroke may occur in up to 17% for patients undergoing uh, high-risk cardiac or brain surgery. Uh, and now that's, that's a pretty big gap there uh, due to the complexity of the different types of surgical procedures. Uh, when perioperative strokes occur, it has a significant negative impact on the recovery of the, from the surgery. Uh, patients with perioperative stroke are less likely to have a good functional outcome and have a much higher mortality. Um, identifying perioperative stroke is a very important and challenging thing to do. Uh, the lingering effects of anesthesia may delay the diagnosis of neurological defects in patients. And sometimes the first clue to a clinical suspicion of stroke is because the patient is having difficulty awakening from the anesthesia. And oftentimes at this point, if that's when um, a possible stroke is being recognized, the neurological deficits may have already been taken into effect for the patient, uh, which just makes the complications even more difficult to, to try to early identify a stroke and prevent any of the permanent damage that may happen. So, um, I think a key to what we're seeing with these per percentages is um, a, a delay in the recognition of any kind of neurological deficits that might be happening either intraoperatively or immediately postoperatively. Uh, hey, therefore, Matt, improvements. Matt, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. What, which slide do you want me to be on? So I want to make sure I'm on the right slide. Currently, we're I had just left we're still stroke good. risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is still a good slide. I'm, I'm just about done with this slide. And then once I'm finished with it, we can, we can move on. And I'll, I'll okay, very good. Yeah, on, just make sure next. you just remind me to change it, please. Sure thing. Thanks, Joe. Uh, so improvements for prevention and early diagnosis and proper management of perioperative stroke is an important thing, not only for the patient, but it also represents an area of, of great public and economic benefit for society, especially considering the aging population that's continuing to grow. So go ahead and uh, go to the next slide for me, please, Joe. Um, perioperative monitoring with TCD. Uh, what TCD can provide is real-time cerebral blood flow information to assist with reducing the incidence of neurological deficits for surgical procedures interoperatively or postoperatively. Uh, there's extensive and rapidly growing uh, literature that suggests the essential hemodynamic information provided by transcranial Doppler ultrasonography uh, neuromonitoring would provide as an effective monitoring modality for improving outcomes for different types of surgical procedures. So with that, what TCD can do uh, is it provides prompt and instantaneous detection of cerebral blood flow changes, embolic activity, hyperperfusion, hypoperfusion, the knowledge of which will impact surgical technique, blood pressure, carbon dioxide control, and medical therapy in the OR and in the post-operative phases. Uh, TCD perfusion monitoring detects the presence and direction of the cerebral blood flow in real time. 
Uh, this real-time information can aid in the quick identification of a possible malperfusion uh, cannula. Uh, it can uh, detect an inadvertent great vessel occlusion, or it can even just uh, suggest adequate collateralization during any kind of surgical maneuver, whether it might be like a large artery clamping or any kind of um, abnormal uh, perfusion of flow happening due to the surgical maneuver that might be happening uh, with TCD continuously monitoring in real time, you're able to detect these um, abnormal changes to cerebral perfusion immediately and um, can instruct the OR team to make corrective adjustments before any permanent damage actually takes effect. Um, also with that, uh, the pulsatility index uh, is another a good parameter um, that you can detect in real time with TCD and uh, it's inversely related to the cerebral vascular uh, resistance. So what that means is if there's a sudden increase in pulsatility index, uh, this may indicate that there could be a possible venous return uh, compromise. And so simply adjusting uh, the venous return cannula can help improve um, that pulsatility index and the overall cerebral perfusion. And uh, increased PI uh, pulsatility index identified even um, during post-cerebral perfusion. So after uh, cerebral perfusion has been completed and removed from the patient, um, if there is persistent increased pulsatility index still being detected by TCD, that could suggest de developing cerebral edema um, and it could detect that early on before any uh, significant further damages happen to the patient. Um, with TCD cerebral perfusion uh, during intraoperatively uh, used, um, it can aid in determining the safe upper limits and lower limits of pup flow and perfusion pressure. And uh, a big one that a lot of people kind of when they first hear about TCD or, or recognize TCD is the detection of active embolization. And so this can occur at any point during or after the surgical procedure. Uh, and, and the embolic counts or the amount of emboli that's being detected depends on the procedure and the patient risk factors and the interoperative surgical uh, maneuvers. Uh, these will produce uh, shower embolic events, and, and with the shower embolic events, um, specifically what we're looking for after these embolic events occur is a sudden uh, increase, which is compensatory, or reduction of flow with a sudden waveform morphology change, which may indicate a large vessel embolic occlusion. And with TCD, um, the, the, the overall benefit of that is we can detect that almost instantaneously when this happens. As long as we can hold a nice clear signal throughout the length of the procedure, um, if there's any sort of abnormal events like I just discussed on this slide happening, TCD can detect that and uh, we can redirect a course to be able to prevent any kind of neurological deficits or lack of cerebral perfusion happening to the patient. Next slide, please, Joe. So interoperative monitoring with TCD is common. Um, some common surgical procedures performed are carotid endarterectomy, carotid stenting, PFO closures, cardiac surgeries, balloon occlusions, and the list goes on. TCD neuromonitoring is an effective monitoring tool to better understand the causes of the neurological complications during the surgical procedures. Um, TCD monitoring of cerebral blood flow is the only available real-time monitoring technique that can identify embolic activity, as well as instantaneous changes in overall cerebral blood flow. Other neuromonitoring techniques are useful and, and needed uh, with these procedures. So I don't wanna say that uh, TCD can replace these, but in a, a multimodality sense in, in these complicated OR cases, um, using 
all these neuromonitoring techniques and combining that information along with TCD can really assist uh, in the early identification of inadequate perfusion of the cerebral blood flow vessels. And some tracked events with TCD include uh, instantaneous changes in cerebral blood flow velocities, changes in pulsatility index, abnormal waveform morphology, and embolic events. Next slide, please, Joe. Here are a couple images that represent uh, the use of the NovaGuide machine within the, the OR setting. Um, and as we can see here, uh, with the autonomous acquisition of the headset, uh, we're able to still place the headset to achieve um, adequate uh, TCD signals while also having all the other equipment hooked up in the OR. And in the picture on the bottom uh, middle there, we can see that uh, the NovaGuide is set up. There's a cooling cap on the patient. We have a NIRS monitor. We have intubation and uh, central lines all within the same picture. And with all that, we're still able to maintain quality adequate uh, cerebral vascular uh, perfusion signals throughout the entirety of the procedure. And now this has been one of the bigger limitations when it comes to implementing TCD in the OR is um, there's a lot of maneuvers happening and there's a lot of things that occur during uh, a complex surgical procedure that could cause the TCD signal to be lost or the headset itself to be shifted. And um, the biggest uh, limitation is, is to reacquire those signals after that. And the trick with that is, is been um, having to, to go back to the sterile field as a technologist to reacquire those signals. Now with the use of autonomous acquisition of the signals, we can stay completely away from uh, the sterile field and still manipulate the probes in a manner that can reobtain an, a quality adequate cerebral perfusion signal and uh, maintain um, constant information, allowing uh, the technologist and the OR team to have real-time data as far as what's going on to the blood flow up to the brain throughout the procedure itself. So Matt, can I please interrupt you for just one second? Um, Absolutely. What part of the world, and since I don't know, was this picture here taken? And you don't have to say what hospital, but what maybe country, state, something? Sure, yeah, this, this particular picture was in Italy. Italy. And I find uh, what's very interesting to me is here they have their uh, uh, oxygenator reservoir. I can see they're on bypass. They're using a, a Levanova pump. This is not the perfusionist here. The perfusionist would be somewhere in this area, you know, be on the other side of this fella. But it looks like they have this uh, monitor, the TCD, in the view for the perfusionist. Uh, as yes. opposed to anesthesia. Is that your experience uh, with the use of the device? Yeah, every OR setting is a little bit different and where exactly we set up the TCD machine has been slightly adjusted compared to the other teams that are working in the OR room and essentially what space is available for us to, to nestle in and, and not be in everybody's way. Well, that doesn't um, look, that doesn't look very uh, that doesn't look like it has a tremendously high uh, footprint to me. No, not at all. And that's actually something that's it's been very useful as far as uh, implementation into the OR setting is that we've been able to maintain quality signals while also staying out of everybody's way. 
mm -hmm. which is a big step forward with TCD in the application in the interoperative setting. Mm -hmm. And if you can move to the next side, we have a few more representative images that show um, just different scenarios of where we have TCD continuously monitoring during a procedure. So on the left there, we can see um, that the TCD workstation is completely moved away. And actually on the other side of all the IV booms and all the, the monitoring um, uh, devices, and it allows us to again, stay out of the way of everybody while also maintaining these quality signals. And, and with the, the workstation itself, it's very easy to spin around, manipulate, flip the screen to uh, different doctors and providers, anesthesi anesthesiologists or perfusionists within the OR that are interested in, in the information and would like to interpret to see if there's any adjustments that need to be made. If you can move to the next slide. So on top of having a small footprint in the OR setting, um, the, the NovaGuide workstation is able to integrate uh, with different OR software. Did with an HDMI them? cable. Oh, with an HDMI cable, we've been able to um, hook up to uh, monitoring booms and actually stream uh, the TCD information up so the doctors and everybody can see it in the room next to say EEG or any other kind of um, patient monitoring devices that might be hooked up. We also have a live streaming feature to a software application that we use that we can remotely tune in and view in real time uh, what the blood flow was looking like for the patient during the OR procedure itself. So you actually don't even have to be in the operating room or near the operating room to have an idea of what the cerebral perfusion is looking like with TCD. So again, um, a big step that we have taken forward as far as um, our TCD device in the NOAA guide is that we're finding ways to efficiently implement this type of technology and information to, to be able to get this information with ease and, and transfer it to anybody that's interested in the information in real time. You can move on to the next slide now. And so going forward, we have a couple case examples, but I wanted to kind of open up for any questions after those, those last few slides before we touch on some use cases and some examples that Josh and I have been a part of. Okay, very good. Well, we have 12 uh, questions so oh. far. Um, oh. 12 questions that are, that, are, that are not redundant questions. Um, so one is, uh, the first I'll just go down the list. What is your experience with the use of a TCD in CV surgery? CV surgery, do you? Go ahead, Josh. In CV oh, surgery, okay. that's the question. What is your experience, your experience with the use of TCD in CV surgery? Yeah, I can uh, start. Cardiovascular surgery? Yes, Go CV, ahead, Josh. cardiovascular, CV surgery, yeah, yeah. sorry. sorry. Yeah, I was going to, I guess I'll start that off. Um, so I've been lucky enough to uh, monitor um, probably hundreds of these cases, different different cases, um, everywhere from the aortic arch repairs to TAVRs, um, PFO closures, um, being uh, part of the, the Spencer Labs in Seattle. Um, we performed a lot of, uh, of research um, looking at, you know, utilizing TCD in a lot of these, a lot of these cases. Um, and from my experience, um, one, uh, with the robotics, and we've done this in Europe, 
um, Canada and the U.S. Um, all across the country. Um, we've been able to successfully, you know, put that on and use it during um, all these procedures. And um, typically, you know, one of the things that we see the most are um, issues with with cannulation. So um, mm -hmm. either cannulation or if a shunt was put in um, during a cardinoidectomy, um, at times it's either kinked or just not placed properly. And we do see a reduction in flow. Um, that would probably be at least from my experience, and I'll shoot it off to Matt now, um, that that alone has been pretty pretty significant as far as monitoring these cases. Yeah, and it's actually, it's it's opening um, some interesting information that we've been gathering uh, during some of these procedures. For instance, uh, we've noticed uh, that the embolic activity during certain catheter maneuvers or are tracking a catheter over the aortic arch uh, while also understanding patient's risk factors of possible atherosclerosis and also stent deployment. All these types of maneuvers uh, can create embolic activity. And so tracking and monitoring uh, these different maneuvers while also seeing the embolic activity gives us a good reference to see what the best maneuver might be for those particular cases in ways that we can improve it to decrease the amount of embolic activity and possible disruption of cerebral perfusion to the patient during these specific exams. Now, with the large variety of different surgical procedures that are out there, there's a lot of information that you can obtain and it can really kind of come down to, uh, based on the patient's risk factors and what's going on with the procedure itself, uh, specific treatments and therapeutic measures to help improve patients overall cerebral perfusion by decreasing the negative neurological deficits. Mm -hmm. So that's very nice. That's a, that really dovetails well into the next question, which is uh, from a colleague perfusionist friend of mine who says, uh, because of what you just had mentioned, what do you say to those that argue it already happened? What difference does it make? Yeah, that's a yeah. that's very common. We hear that we hear that quite often, especially with embolization, because embolization, um, especially during these surgeries, um, you know, adding blood thinners or or retrieving a clot is um, probably something that you know isn't going to happen. Um, but there are some very important findings with with embolic activity, uh, like once the procedure is done, if the patient is still embolizing. Um, that's a key finding that would um, otherwise be unknown. Uh, you would not know that they're embolizing. Um, and you would identify it during the case, uh, which is important because then they can act on it um, after the case and they can continue monitoring postoperatively um, and, and treat the patient accordingly. And so I, I've personally seen that. Uh, once the patient is closed up, there's no um, reason to have air emboli. Um, so we can we can um, really you know dictate that these are, you know, particular emboli, mm -hmm. um, and then post-operatively, post they, can, they can treat the patient. Well, there's a follow-up question to that um, that's not necessarily, it may be indirectly related. Will the device, actually, this is a really good question, will the device diagnose what the problem is and give you possible causes? So let's say you have a, a pulsatility index or you have a decrease in amplitude. I'm trying to sort of add to the question to maybe make it be a little more, maybe a little less broad, but from a, you know, from your experience, do, do you get any kind of feedback? Maybe that's the way to put it, that this is a signal problem as opposed to this is really a flow problem. 
Yeah, so there's there's a few different techniques um, when it comes to determining it. What TCD does is it again, I think something that we 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 got to remember is the the real time information that we're receiving from TCD during these procedures. Um, with stroke, we want to be able to identify immediately if there's any kind of uh, bad perfusion happening up to the brain. And so, to touch back on the embolization, um, it's it's commonly known now that embolization does happen during these procedures and we've identified that a lot with TCD. Now with the um, action of embolization happening, what we're looking for when it comes to monitoring with TCD is not just strictly, yes, there was embolization here when you deployed this stent or ran this, this catheter. What, what we're concerned about is the sudden waveform morphology change or a sudden reduction of flow immediately following any kind of embolic activity, which could suggest a possible large vessel occlusion or lack of perfusion happening up to the brain in one way or another. So to kind of touch back on the last question you asked, does it diagnose? It, it What it does is it indirectly recognizes um, abnormal perfusion up to the brain and it shines a light on what could be the cause for it. And now the factors that come into play is what's currently happening during the procedure itself, what, what um, maneuvers are happening, and then um, also take into consideration the patient's risk factors and if the patient's risk factors could cause any kind of lack of cerebral perfusion happening up to the brain. And mm -hmm. with that information, it can lead, it can shine a light on what could be the cause of that lack of perfusion. Mm -hmm. So they were, uh, they, they, to follow up on that, um, it doesn't give any kind of, uh, I don't, not verbal, but written uh, assessment of anything. It's all interpretation of the uh, of the, the the person monitoring it or viewing it. Is that correct or incorrect? That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. There there are um, there are criterias. There are you know there are normal values and abnormal values, um, and it becomes quite obvious during these cases. Um, what the problem is. And well, so I'm going to skip this next question and go to this question because I think this question actually I like really well is, do you offer a simple course for perfusion or anesthesia? And I, I guess you would have to add nurses in there as well that can learn how to easily read these signals uh, during a cardiac surgery procedure. Remember, 90% yeah. of the people that are watching this program from, for, from our audience are either perfusionists, nurses in the ICU, cardiac surgery, anesthesia, nurse practitioners that probably also work in the, uh, in the uh, uh, operating theater. So it's cardiac surgery based. You have to keep that in mind. We're not, we don't have, I don't know of anyone here that is uh, from the cath lab or the uh, vascular suite. Okay. Yeah, and we, we, we do offer courses, um, and there are courses across the country and in Europe um, that, that, you know, provide this, this information. Um, we also do hands-on training, and I think that's probably um, one of the most useful things, so that uh, you would get the basic transcranial Doppler training a, a little bit like what we, we did in the beginning, but a little bit more intense. Um, and then once you understand how to read, you know, ultra, basically ultrasound waveforms, um, we, the, the hands-on portions, you know, actually, um, working with us while you do these cases using TCD, um, I think that's where you end up learning the most. And that's something that we provide. Um, and again, there's other, um, resources for that, for that very thing. Mm -hmm. um, How, so 
Yeah, so it actually asks, you know, what is the, uh, what is the support? So, uh, you know, hypothetically, let's say I, uh, uh, we get this device at, at, at you know where. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to say it, you know, okay, but thank you. we get it, you know where. <laughs> And um, so now everyone's going to want it because where's you know where right, right. in this area. <laughs> um, and uh, it comes into the cardiac suite and we have it hooked up to a patient and we're going to use it. Right. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think most of us are going to have a basic understanding of what it flow looks like. Red's going towards you, blue's going away. You have basic amplitude. You see the... Uh, uh, I know you don't have a video. I have a video, and I'm going to show. I'm going to show you that video. I was supposed to do it at the beginning of what emboli actually looks like. But what support is there to say, okay, we're going to kind of hang out with you. We see something and go, what? What is that? What does that mean? What do we get for the cost of the device? I can tell you, we just did a three-day training up in the uh, DFW area. And at the beginning of the training, the techs were like, they were so-so with TCD. And at the end of the training, they just felt much more confident. They were excited to do TCD exams after that. And we're about to do another training. Now you're talking about people that are already trained in ultrasonography. Yes, they were vascular techs. I'm talking about perfusionists. Oh, okay. Three days ain't gonna be enough. No. No, because we're sort of, right. you know, That's where I we're, not these that, guys. we're not that smart. So but yeah. in the operating room, do you come into the operating room and work with us so that if we have a question about what does this mean, we can actually talk to somebody in real time and help us to understand right. it. And that's where I rely on Josh and Matt. So you guys yeah. would come. We would we would come. Um, and actually, one of the beautiful things about uh, this whole scenario is the length of these procedures. And so, it, it, you know, typical training at, at any hospital uh, becomes a matter of, of time and resources of, of who's available and, and how long are they going to be available for. And typically... Um, you, there isn't a lot of time, but when you're in the operating room for, you know, 10 hours, six, six to 10 hours. I mean, um, no, we're, we're not, I mean, I mean, hopefully we're not, hopefully <laughs> we're yeah. not. Okay. Yeah, well, we're you like, know, you know, we're more, shooting it up like four hours. We got some really good surgeons. Um, yeah, and <laughs> I don't want to do those cases that take that long or work with those surgeons that <laughs> need that long. So we try to keep it around four hours, but you're right. The Fair procedures enough. are a little longer. There's usually a lot happening. You have go well. Let me let me not get in my own thing. Let me let, let me address the questions that people had. Did you want to say something about that? Yes, actually, uh, we, we we do provide support for the operating room. Uh, Matt, Josh, or um, a few others on our med ed team could come out and support those cases. Um, we'll go as long as uh, needed to make sure that they feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And. Um, but yes, we're always there for support. We're mm -hmm. one of the only manufacturers that offer the support that we offer. You're the only manufacturer that has the device. That's true. <laughs> okay, so um, it, this question seems obvious to me, but I'm gonna ask it out of uh, respect to the asker. How does this differ from NEARS? Um, you know, I, I, I have, actually I have a couple of slides, but let me let you address it because it was a question that was asked by, the, uh, by, an, audio, by an attendee. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, so, that's, so go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say that that um, NEARS and then EEG, uh, they they assess. Uh, so NEARS assesses um, the superficial blood flow uh, on the outside of the brain, as far as I understand. And uh, 
what TCD is doing is assessing uh, the large cerebral vessels within the brain itself, so underneath the cranium. And so there's currently no monitoring techniques that can assess that type of blood flow in real time. Um, so NIRS is, is, seems to be a, an indirect way to determine what the perfusion is actually going up to the brain. Um, and, and with NIRS, I understand that there, there may be a delay in the information that you're gathering compared to what TCD can provide you in real time. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I mean, you're 100% right. And I do have a couple of slides that I want to show, but I do need to tell my audience and ask them, you know, in deference to time. I, of course, we would love for you to call in. I don't know what it is about, uh, about people not wanting to be live on the air. Uh, they would rather text the questions or ask the questions with uh, our, our, our uh, uh, messenger service, but that's just the way they prefer to do it. And I'm doing my best to ask to answer them all or to ask them all. This one I think is 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 more complex, but I think it's really a good question. It's from an intensivist, and he is talking about the microvascular scanner that's used to look at it. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's used sublingually, uh, sublingually, and it looks at the flow through the microvascular system in patients who are septic, and it can show those microvascular perfusion uh, dif uh, deficits or hyperdynamic. There's all kinds of shunting, all kinds of things like that. Does this play any role in the intensive care unit with either, and the question was uh, for ECMO patients on high dose uh, pressors and or patients who are septic and have perfusion, uh, uh, you know, odd perfusion characteristics as a result of that? Yeah, so the use of TCD um, in general for any concerns of, of perfusion issue is, is, has been well established over the last, last 40 years. Um, ECMO um, and, and sepsis, I wouldn't say they're routine uses, but one of the, the reasons they're not routine is because of, of, of the ability to do transcranial Doppler in any institution. Um, you don't usually have the resources uh, for someone to, to see a patient who's, who's septic maybe um, or on ECMO. They're usually kind of bound to doing um, other other services like EEG um, or vascular Doppler, and those usually take precedence over many of the other transcranial Doppler studies um, for for um, many reasons. Um, but anytime there's a concern of any perfusion deficit or over perfusion deficit, transcranial Doppler um, can be used. Well, do you uh, see a relationship between you know, sometimes when, of course, a patient is septic, you'll see very low blood pressure, high heart rate, cardiac output is actually uber, uber high, uh, but you have a loss of vascular tone, um, and so your microvasculature is very deranged. The, is there a relationship between that microvascular derangement and the macrovascular flow through the cerebral arteries, in particular the MCA that you would use uh, in the case of uh, of this device. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's a bit hard to answer, but I 
I can say that you can test the auto regulation. You, you can test the vasomotor reserve system. Um, there's a couple of ways to do this. There's a very easy way to do this, with the, which is a breath holding index study where you simply have the patient hold their breath um, and you can assess whether or not they are um, passive to their, to their blood pressure, basically mm -hmm. whether or not um, mm -hmm. their vessels are fully dilated or maximally, um, um, maximally dilated the mm -hmm. reserve. Is, is and that's the pulsatility index he's talking about. Is that the that, pulsatility, the PI you're well, talking about? The, the PI gives you uh, an indication that there may be um, maximal dilatation of the, the vessels. That's a, that's a very fair assessment. If you have a, a fully dilated um, cerebral vasculature, the pulsatility will be decreased because the, the diastolic flow will raise will, will rise um, during the cardiac cycle. Um, and so that, that is an indicator. Um, but with this uh, vasomotor reserve testing, um, we basically are, we either give CO2 or we build CO2 up in the body with the breath holding. Um, and that shows us how the small vasculature reacts to an increase of, of CO2. Hmm, very um, simply, if there, yeah, if there are no changes, um, that indicates that the, the vessels are maximally dilated because, you know, CO2 should dilate the vessels more. Okay. And just a few more questions that we'll do before you go, go on. And I also want to show you a couple of slides. In fact, I'm going to show you my slides before we go to your slides, because I think that uh, that might answer some of these questions as well um, and sort of help dovetail into your case examples. Um, can you detect gases versus particulate emboli? I know I've asked that question before. Uh, somebody, I've asked it, but uh, our audience would like to know. Yeah, I can answer that. Um, so there, there is some technology that um, tries to, and I say try to because it's um, it's not as sensitive sensitive as one would like um, for practical use. Um, it's often used for research, uh, but one of the most powerful um, ways we can distinguish between these two is is purely um, based off of what is happening at the time that we see them. And so if you do a, um, an easy example is if you inject air for a, a right to left shunt study to look for a PFO, you know that that's air, right? And you know when you inject it and there's a PFO that you'll see it in the brain in, in about three heartbeats. And um, if you didn't do an injection and you saw emboli, um, it, it's a, an assumption still, but um, it's a very strong guess that those are gonna be particular emboli mm -hmm. because there's no reason for there to be air. Right, but keeping this in the in the uh, within the context of cardiac surgery, um, where you have a lot of manipulation of the aorta cannulation, you've got patients that are, you know, vascular pass. They have athroma. They have calcification. You have the pump. You have air. You have all these things happening. Is there any recognizable difference? in the, let's say, the velocity of right. an embolic event that occurs, which would lead a, an experienced uh, uh, sonographer or person involved in this uh, that could say that is likely gaseous, that is likely embolic because I would think that, or likely uh, uh, particulate, because I would think air gas would move faster. Like, is there anything that tells you that on the 
signal that you get. Yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, description. So air and light are very reflective, and you usually have a very very strong signal. And so when you when you show your slides, and, and Matt had some light um, up in the previous slides, but basically you get this white streak. Um, and air and light are always very very bright, which means the amplitude's high and the, re the reflection of the actual air bubble is high. Um, if you did a crud endarterectomy procedure. Um, and you pulled out that prodded plaque, what happens is there's um, new plaque that grows over the, the basically the, the wall of the vessel that was taken out. There's three walls and they, they take out the intima. Um, so a smooth layer of, of plaque grows along that, that, um, that wall that was taken away. And that plaque you'll see break off or, or small pieces of that clot, let's call it, um, you'll see break off. And they're almost, they're, they're visible, but they're, you can tell completely the difference between air and that particular emboli. So um, it's... There, there, yeah, there's contrast injection. So if you did a contrast injection, it looks different than, it, than um, an air bubble injection and um, real emboli breaking off. Um, Definity, which is a lipid-based lipid um, air bubble that's covered, covered in lipids. Um, they use for enhancing imaging, uh, for echo. Um, that looks different as well. And so there, there are differences. I think if you're experienced enough, you do get a very strong sense that um, these are probably not, um, you know, air or gaseous. I mean, you're concerned. That's something that we would bring up during these cases. You can also look at the transesophageal if it's if the heart's, if it's not collapsed and you can see um, any of the chambers of the heart and you can see air bubbles. Oh, we see. I mean, we see massive amounts of air when we do a valve. I mean, we have massive amounts. I mean, it, and it's it's and, and and those patients, of course, you know, looking at the data and you showed the data earlier. You know, we 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 want to believe it's benign, but we know it's not. So, I mean, those are very good. Of course, you know, we get the obvious questions from people. I don't know if you want to answer it today. You guys can if you want to. Uh, if you don't want to, I totally understand it. But they want to know what the cost of the device is, and they want to know what the cost of the disposables are, the per case cost. If you want to discuss that, you can. Contact your local sales rep. If you're in the Texas area, that's me. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Okay, so, I mean, but it is, it's a legitimate question. People are going to ask. They want to yeah. know, um, you know, and we'll go from there. Let me ask you this. Is it so much money you got to take a loan out? No. Okay. Very good. So I do want to show you my slides real quick. And I think both Josh and Matt, there are like four of them. They're very fast. They're five. My, I hate to say it. My video is going to work because it transferred over. I apologize. Your video didn't work because I think your video is really cool. But that's okay. We'll deal with it. Um, can you go to uh, my slides and just let me know when they're up because I can't see. Okay. So what do we perfuse? And uh, this is a classic perfusionist. You see the very small brain. Uh, and of course, I asked the question, you know, TCD, should it be a standard of care? And uh, of course, I always mention Bob Groom because I think he did a lot, so much work with cardiac surgery. And I know a couple of cardiac surgeons, Ari Blitz is one of them, who uh, is a, a wonderful, fantastic cardiac surgeon who would not do cases without TCD, but the old style. So it was very labor intensive and hard work, mm -hmm. but he really felt it gave him some uh, real good data. But what do we perfuse? The body as a whole, yeah, the limbs, yeah, the heart, yeah, the kidneys, the liver, the gut, you know, but what about the brain? 
and there are trillions, 100 trillion stars, trillions and trillions of them in the Milky Way. And there's in fact that many neurons in our brain. And it's, you lose a lot of brain when you lose blood flow going to it. You lose a lot of synapses, a lot of neurons. It's a very bad thing to do. How do we, however, measure adequacy of perfusion when we're doing cases? Now, we'll talk about NEARS very quickly, but we assume a whole lot. We right. use some fancy calculations. We measure SVO2. We check the lab and the acid-base balance. We measure DO2, uh, and we look at cerebral oximetry. Well, I'm going to very quickly tell you about cerebral oximetry. Here is a cerebral oximetry of the range that you can get from patients who are alive. If you're dead, you can still get a cerebral oximetry number. And if you're dead, hopefully beforehand, and we remove your brain, you can still get a cerebral oximetry number. And there was an article, a paper written, I can't remember the author now, Lucky called... Watermelon? No, it was called oh. Patient or Pumpkin. Right. And if you put a sneers on a pumpkin with right. a candle in it, you'll get a reading. So live patient, dead patient, and evacuated cerebral cavity patient, no brain at all, perfusionist, right. will have a <laughs> cerebral oximetry number. I have to say this is just very important, I think, to hear. There is no good stroke. Perioperative stroke rates in cardiac surgery range, and when I say perioperative, periprocedural, range from 1.7 to 2.9%, depending on what study, but that's about where it's at. In my view, that is too high. Encephalopathy rates, however, range from 7.7 to 13.8. And those patients with that brain fog, frequently it's very hard to diagnose. There's subtle changes. Uncle Bob doesn't seem like Uncle Bob anymore. The patient could be compatible postoperatively. There's delays in extubation, longer time in the hospital. And those encephalopic uh, encephalopathic rates tend to be, from my experience contemplating this, a generally a hypoperfusion kind of episode, not necessarily just embolic. Right. And when you go on bypass with cardiac surgery, there are times when you're really struggling to get the blood pressure up from 30 to 40. Uh, or to you know get it up to 50, and you're giving a lot of vasopressors, vasopressin, neo, levofed, uh, norepi, whatever the case may be, to try and get that blood pressure up, but you're also running lower flows. There's a lot going on, and so if you know we worry about the kidney, oh my God, has, are we making any urine? Well, what about the brain? The brain is the most sensitive organ we have to hypoxia and, and, and low blood flow. Right. The kidney is an important organ. Can't live, you don't want to live without it. You can, but you don't want to. The heart, really important organ, and I, myocardial protection is very important, but the most sensitive organ is the brain. We've got to really start focusing in on that a lot more because the encephalop encephalopathy rates 
are extraordinarily high, but stroke rates are also too high. So I'm going to play this video several times and just talk through it very quickly. What I want you to look at is the top left here. It's a little blurry, but what you're looking at is those real bright white lines that Josh was talking about earlier. What I want you to look at here, and it's just going to repeat, is here is the arteriotomy. This is an off-pump cabbage. I'm going to start it again. Here is the Mr. Blower, right here. And oh. here is the stabilizer. Oh, sorry. Oh, ah, ah. this is the case you were talking about. And here is the stabilizer. So here's the arteriotomy. Here is your cerebral blood flow going through the middle cerebral artery. And as you watch, you suddenly see right there all those reflections. And what I want you to do is simultaneously look right here. See the Mr. Blower? I'm going to let you watch it one more time. Bleeding out of the coronary. Coronary being cleared. Reflection of gas assembly. Think of the MCA as a target organ to be protected. So what is happening? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'm going to stop it right, right there. here. Yep. You, don't, you see the first little reflection and look at the Mr. Blower. It is blowing in the coronary, up the coronary, out of the coronary uh, ostia in the aorta, and straight up to the brain, to the middle cerebral artery. There it is. This is Dr. Ramshandani's case at Methodist, and they were using your device, the Nova Signal, at the time this was done. That's a good finding, brain surgery. And that shows you that just because you're off pump doesn't mean you can't do something because having seen that, you're going to definitely change maybe the angle of where that right. Mr. Blower is coming in instead of pointing it towards the, uh, the proximal portion of the coronary, right. the yeah. more distal portion, turn it down farther away, don't use it at all. So what did they do when they saw that? Well, it took them a couple of times to figure it out. Okay. They were like, well, where did that come from? Right. And then they did that again. Well, where did that come from? And they it took them a couple of times to go, wait a minute, every time I do this, that happens. Right. You learn. <laughs> because had they not been monitoring cerebral oximetry, I mean, uh, if they'd not been monitoring TCD, we just go on fat, dumb, and happy. And do you know how many times, uh, very rare that anybody uses off-pump coronary anymore. There's right. a few surgeons that still do. Dr. Ramshandani's one of them. But I can assure you, he, he changed again. his practice. Right. This that makes taught sense. him something. So, there are no knowns. That is to say, there's things we know that we know. And there are known unknowns right that is there are things that we know we don't know but the most dangerous of things are the 
unknown unknowns. There are things we don't even know we know, and that's what I think TCD offers us. Um, that's it. End of my slides. Let's put his back up. And we'll go to case presentations. And from current. And we're back up. Those were my slides. And that's sort of how I feel about this whole process of what we're doing here. We simply don't know. We have very easy ways of knowing if we are protecting the myocardium. I can look at the, if we're giving cardioplegia, it should be asystolic, right? It's right. not going to have anything. When we take the clamp off, I can look at the heart. The heart is beating, but it ain't beating great. And I look up at the EKG and the ST segments are elevated. We probably have air in the coronary. I need to drive the perfusion pressure up, blow that air out, and it gets better. Or one of the graphs isn't very good. And we might have, they might have to redo the right coronary or the, or the LAD or whatever it might be. But we can see it. There's an immediate sign, right? right? You can look at the uh, uh, kidney. I can look at metabolites, the creatinine level, look at the urine output. I can treat it with some Lasix. Did I get a reaction? Probably kidneys are probably okay. Right. Liver's probably going to do okay no matter what until later, you know, having, uh, uh, having hepatic failure is a completely different problem here. But the heart and the kidneys. Even with cerebral oximetry, cerebral oximetry would never have noticed that problem. Not at all. But that problem really did exist. And I think that's just uh, the... Uh, an awesome the, example. The, the, yeah, it really is. And cerebral yeah, oximetry is. is looking at the blood flow in the skin, the bone, the, 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 the underneath the bone, the mixture of arterial and venous blood. Um, so it's taking all of that into account. And if you have enough hypothermia maybe or whatever, you know, enough of your cerebral vascular system open, you're probably not even gonna notice any change in your cerebral oximetry numbers, but you could have embolized and not have, have zero flow through you know, one of your, your right MCA and not even know it. Well, and now with the robot, you can see if you have flow and what the velocities are. That's what's critically important. I think there's such a difference in this. But anyway, well, let's go on with your case presentations, guys. I'm so sorry. I hope those slides added some value. <laughs> Oh yeah, most definitely, and we can, we can, um, we can proceed to the next slide. I think that was a great segue into this case. So this case is uh, an aortic arch repair that was performed in, in Liverpool, um, UK. Uh, the doctor there, the, the cardiac surgeon who's performing these procedures, um, was trying to figure out a way to, to help his patient. So he had a patient who committed suicide due to postoperative delirium, and after that, that was kind of the, the last line for him and his quest to figure out what he can do during these procedures to, to limit something like that happening, um, as well as uh, trying his best to prevent, prevent um, stroke as well. And so um, it's been long known that cognitive dysfunction after these procedures uh, has been a big concern um, from aortic surgery, um, but uh, post-operative delirium, acute is something that has been recognized more recently. Um, we see about a 9% risk of stroke during these long aortic arch repairs. And in Liverpool, 
they're experiencing about a 30% rate of delirium. I don't know what the national averages are. And I don't know how well those are taken account for, but they've done a good job at that. And again, they decided to use transcranial Doppler in order to prevent some of this stuff. Um, go ahead and go on to the next slide. Yeah, I would say those numbers, uh, just for you know, for the sake of discussion, um, are pretty consistent. Uh, you know, in, in worldwide, in first world, you know, cardiac surgery uh, centers that are doing um, uh, aortic surgery, uh, a nine percent stroke risk is is pretty reasonable. Probably, maybe a little low. Um, sounds like this guy takes a lot of care. 30% of the delirium rate, I think, is also very consistent um, with that type of uh, operation. I mean, a, a big, like an acute aortic dissection, you've got a much higher risk of stroke than that. Um, but uh, but 9%, 30% seem reasonable. We, we did this earlier, but just to give you a sense of actually using the robotic system during this procedure, you can see that um, a coolant cap is used uh, nears um, yeah, and this oximetry of the brain. So all this here's stuff. Here's the cooling cap. Here's your nears. Here's your bis. Um, here's your uh, your your robot. Your uh, trans TCD. Here's your patient is intubated, and here's your central line here. Yeah. So, so you've got a lot. Yeah, there's there's a lot there, and it, it actually fits quite well in there. The central line uh, may require an extension. Um, to date, that's really been really the only adjustment to the to the patient or the area that we've, we've experienced. Um, so we can go ahead and move on to the next slide. So the, during this case, the bilateral middle cerebral arteries uh, were monitored uh, throughout the procedure. Um, and to give you more clarity, we, we can um, monitor the posterior circulation as well. Um, typically, we're more concerned about the anterior circulation. Uh, but with the robotics, we can actually navigate between the anterior and, and posterior hemisphere, um, as well as the contralateral side. Um, so we, in, in Liverpool, they do perform lateral cases. Um, they've adjusted their system uh, to be able to do so. And they will um, actually, because of the sensitivity of the power M mode, we're able to monitor the contralateral side. Um, so they can, you can go clear across from left and, and, and see the right side, or you can see the right side from the left side. Um, but routinely, we monitor the middle cerebral arteries. The majority of the blood flow will go to the, uh, that hemisphere of the brain. This way, we can capture as many emboli as possible, um, as well as any significant flow changes. And so um, one of the most uh, powerful things uh, for these cases is to establish a baseline. Um, we can establish a baseline during um, um, multiple parts of the procedure. And so we like to get one preoperatively. So this uh, gives you, uh, it, it establishes what is normal for the patient. And so not all these patients will have normal blood flow. Um, in this case, as you see in the first image, those are completely normal waveforms, middle cerebral arteries. Um, so we'll establish, again, a baseline prior to the procedure. And this doesn't have to be done uh, before the patient's on the table. It can be done um, on the table. It just needs to be done before anesthesia. Um, and then, again, we can establish a baseline before any um, significant uh, part of the procedure, such as cannulation, uh, cardioplegia, et cetera. 
Um, the second image here um, was used to establish a baseline during um, bypass, um, as well as the last image, which gives us a baseline during um, hypothermia or length of the patient, which in this case was done to 22 degrees. Um, and you can see the flow velocity dropped about about 50%, probably 40%. 43 to 20. Yeah, for and, on bypass. And, yeah. Yeah. And for further clarity, a decrease in velocity does not mean there is a decrease in perfusion. Um, one of the things that the power envelope um, gives us is amplitude, and amplitude um, indirectly gives us a sense of the perfusion. It doesn't give us an exact number, so we don't know um, quantitatively what the perfusion is. But again, we establish a baseline. In this case, we have very bright signals which correlate. Um, to um, normal perfusion, uh, typically, and we, and we know this because uh, the patient is normally perfused um, before procedure uh, um, with MRIs, et cetera. And so we establish that as a baseline. That signal um, being that everything stays the same, as in the patient isn't moved or the signal is moved, um, that signal itself clues us into um, that there may be some significant changes in the perfusion. Um, itself. We can go ahead and go on to the next slide. Great. So uh, the first image is uh, during cardioplegia, so the heart is uh, stopped, so they can perform cannulation. Um, as expected, we have no, no flow to the brain during this point in time. Uh, once the anomalous artery was cannulated, uh, we see uh, flow restored mm -hmm. to the right um, middle and anterior artery. So this is on the right side of the screen on the second image where you see the red and blue. Um, there are some most likely air emboli um, during this part of the procedure as we expect air um, to be introduced into the system once these cannulas are placed. Um, but um, interestingly, what we see is the left side of the brain is only um, being perfused to the anterior cerebral artery, not the middle cerebral artery itself. So that red band that you see um, in the last image on the left side of the screen, where you see the emboli going through so the larger white streaks, that is the uh, portion of the signal that's in the middle cerebral artery. And you can see that is absent um, during cannulation of only the right, or the innominate artery on the right side. And so despite um, flow going to the ACAs, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's connection into the middle cerebral artery itself. And so we can rely um, on cannulation of just one artery if there's enough collateral in the brain to provide flow to all of the vessels. And we can see this real time. We can tell if the brain is adequately getting blood flow um, to it during cannulation. Um, at this point, uh, we know that the, the cannula to the nominate will not provide flow to the right MCA. Um, and so cannulation of this subclavian uh, was initiated to restore flow to both, both hemispheres. This cannula was placed, and interestingly enough, again, there was still crossover. And so as you can see, the red and blue signal represents the MCA and the ACA. You should see that on both sides. So on the left side, the ACA is coming towards us, which means it's the reverse. So, um, Competitive flow or something wrong with the cannula is causing a crossover, so it's causing uh, the right side of the brain to actually um, help or provide flow to the left side. 
Um, if this, you have an intact circle of Willis, you know. I mean. Right. Exactly. If you have an intact circle, circle of Willis, and this is one of the reasons why NERS is possibly not um, the best surrogate to, to determine how well the brain is perfused, because you actually have what's called peel collaterals or leptomeningeal collaterals that form. And so these are these are um, at the surface of the brain, and so you could have an occlusion of an artery and still have perfusion via these smaller uh, collateral mm -hmm. pathways. But they may not be um, adequate, and especially over a longer period of time. The longer you have less flow to the, the arteries um, in a low flow state, the more likely you are to have delayed ischemia. Um, and, and this is, is this occurs. So the ability for us to tell that an artery is compromised um, lets us know that there's a potential for that. But it also gives us the ability, um, it gives the whole this whole surgical team the ability to figure out what the cause may be. And so we can uh, proceed to the next slide. Great. So once that was recognized, they adjusted the cannulas. Um, and I can't tell you exactly what they did, but uh, they, they adjusted the cannulas. And um, normal flow was restricted to both sides of the brain. So now you can see um, symmetry between the two sides. You see the red and blue bands. Those are both, those are all the vessels as they were um, pre-procedurally. Um, and so floor was restored. They, they continued the procedure um, post-procedurally. So this is after they repaired the aorta and they uh, sewn the patient up. Um, we see a significant difference between the sides. And so a couple of questions back, someone was asking, you know, are there clear-cut um, outputs from the machine that, you know, that blatantly tell you that there's an issue? Um, it, it doesn't print that out. But... Um, there are very obvious changes, and, and one of the biggest changes is just the ability to look and compare one side to the next. And so you can simply see here that they're completely different um, and that the right side is, is what we call dampened and that the pulsatility has changed um, to 0.4. And again, normal is about 0.8 to 1.2. Um, and so this was something that would probably be um, not caught um, without doing transcranial Doppler monitoring, as it's not routine to perform uh, vessel imaging after these procedures. Um, that typically is only done if someone is symptomatic postoperatively, and even then, uh, they're typically not going to rush somebody off to CPA. Um, if you're lucky, you may have TCD in that institution, and you'd be able to scan the patient. But this gives um, the whole team the ability to know that you know, there now is an issue um, on the right side, this could be likely be in the, the carotid artery because we have damp flow, which suggests a proximal obstruction. Um, and so this um, is a perfect example of why transcranial alpha monitoring is um, important uh, to, to be used during these procedures. Again, in this institution, their goal is to use the, flow, the, the blood flow velocities to determine what rate the pump runs at during the procedure. And so they actually tailor that rate uh, based off of the blood flow. The Nova guy? Um, sounds like the video may be working. Um, so yeah, so this this case, again, it, it demonstrates um, you know, how we can actively watch the blood flow, see if there's any changes, um, and alert the team so that they can you know, quickly uh, see if there's you know, anything obstructing the flow uh, that they can change. And then I think we have a, a few more cases, but more than happy to take any questions about this um yeah the only question that i got on this section 
was, do you keep a record? One second. Is there a permanent record of the entire file for use uh, in the medical re in the uh, EMR? In the EMR, um, so there, yeah, it, it doesn't directly input data into the EMR. Um, there are uh, systems that it can communicate with. So there's uh, Moberg, ICM Plus. There's a few multimodality systems that it that we can integrate the the Nova Guide system into. Um, which then would be incorporated with the EMR. Um, it, it is possible to um, to work with other systems that I didn't mention, and then the the um, Nova Guide itself will be updated. Um, we have a, we have updates regularly about I think every six months or so, so we're due for an update, and that does include the EMR. Um, again, I think as Mike said, you can maybe contact. Uh, well, you can contact the company. We can give you more insight into exactly what that will provide. So, but, okay, but is there that. a is there a permanent record of this? In other words, you do a case, so you use it. Let's say you use it routinely on right. every case. Is there a file that is saved anywhere so that if that patient later on has some kind of a of a problem and somebody says, well. You know, did we did we have any problems when we were on pump? Did we have good right. flow? You know, were there any things that occurred that so, there is a physical record of it? I believe with our Nova Guide View app, there is. We can we can save the entire study with our Nova Guide View app, and then also, um, yes, screenshots can be sent to PAC's system and video clips, and they're saved in the Nova Guide View as well. So only screen clips. So when, like when we do, I think that's more of a, um, a limitation on that system, which is one of the reasons to get our Nova Guide view so you can see the entire video versus packs that I believe only takes a certain segment of video that will only upload into their right. system. Because I would want to see, right. I would want to have, if we, if, I mean, that's a great, actually it's a great question because I mean, I'm thinking about it too, that if I do, a, if I'm using this technology and I use it as a case and later on somebody says, you know, this patient had a, a, the patient thinks they had a neurologic uh, a, a problem. Can we take a look I, at the video? I can see, right. I can show you, well, here we are on pump. Here's the pump period. This is my time that I took care of this patient. And I know that uh, there was a, 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 a good flow bilaterally, MCA uh, left and right. Right. The Nova Guide view would be able to show the entire video. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And the other, what, what we also do is we have what we call bookmarking events. And so we, for each particular uh, procedure, we actually write a custom protocol more or less. And, and you would mark each event that happens. And all that data is saved into the system. There are several different ways to output it. One of them is a, is a standard CSV or Excel file. And that gives you... Um, a, hundreds of seconds of data um, and so if you sync the times up with you know the other machines um, you have a very good account of what's happened uh, throughout the procedure with the, the bookmarking or event markers that show you each part of the procedure um, and so that's a, another option that that's provided okay all right well let's 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 move on to perioperative monitoring during aortic arch replacement that's always fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very complex style of, it, of a surgery, that's for sure. Um, so with this case, um, 
This was a 68-year-old male with a complete aortic arch replacement due to a type B dissection. Um, and an interesting complication, well, I guess not complication, but a uh, variant to this particular case was uh, there was a aortic arch variation where uh, the right subclavian artery originated off the left side of the aortic arch and traversed back behind the esophagus to provide blood flow to the right common carotid artery and the right subclavian artery. Mm. And because of this, um, selective uh, cerebral perfusion was necessary. And um, with TCD, we monitored the middle and interior cerebral arteries throughout the procedure, closely tracking any changes or embolic activity. And um, with, with the cannulations, there was a ascending aortic cannulation and then bilateral carotid cannulation for cerebral perfusion. And on the right, it gives us an idea of, of the setup, which I'm sure a lot of uh, the people so they, here viewing this are familiar yeah, with. So here's your drainage for the, you know, drainage into the pump. And then mm -hmm. what you have here is you have the innominate artery cannulated and you have the left carotid cannulated. And it looks like they have put a clamp across the uh, left subclavian. Right. And now this is just a generic photo of of what um, kind of a typical case would be with normal anatomical variation uh, with this particular patient. Since oh, they had did this not weird. Have a, a right oh, I phenomenon. see right here. Yeah, they had this weird yeah. little deal going on here. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so what they ended up doing is uh, for systemic perfusion, they uh, cannulated the ascending aorta. And then for cerebral perfusion, they here. did bilateral cannulations of the right and left common carotid arteries because so, there was no innominate uh, artery due to yeah. the anatomical variation. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah, okay. a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and move to the next slide. So like Josh's case, uh, baseline TCD values obtained before perfusion bypass. These baseline values will be used as a reference for identifying sudden changes in large vessel cerebral blood flow. Um, this, this is always a good value to have before and then use as reference after the procedure is completed. Uh, just like with Josh's case, there was a notable difference in the bilateral waveform suggesting obstructive blood flow to one side of the brain. And so with this uh, TCD values or these baseline values, um, they could be used as reference and quickly identify any kind of abnormal blood flow um, during the procedure itself and then immediately post-operatively as well. Mm -hmm. I and have so, a, a, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sure. No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, cardiac arrest on, on the image on the right side of the screen has been achieved by, uh, circulate, by circulation is now being done with perfusion bypass via the ascending aortic cannulation. Uh, this again will provide systemic perfusion for the patient, um, but at this point in time, uh, cerebral perfusion still needs to be assessed, and so um, bilateral carotid arteries still need to be selectively cannulated. So if you can move on. Actually, Joe, yeah. if you could check really quick. These are little mini videos. There might be, if you scroll your mouse over the image, you see a little yes. play button pop up. They, there are. Yours work. Go ahead and give that a shot. Great. So this is a, the baseline uh, four second image of what it looks like. And then if you play the next video, this is uh, just as uh, cardiac function is diminishing and perfusion bypass is taking over. Mm -hmm. And the patient is also being cooled during this time as well. So, so I have a question slide, for you. Yeah, I have a question okay. for you. Why is this 
appear to be a more white. Is this a viscosity issue or uh, this one's darker? Basically, that means a stronger right. signal. That's all that means. Stronger signal. The the white is strong. Which is stronger? The the brighter the brighter the color, the white the stronger the signal. Okay. And these these signal the the brightness of that signal can also be adjusted on what's called a, a gain adjustment. Okay. And so what so that's not relevant clinically. To... That's not in this case. There's not nothing so much. It just lets you know you have a really good signal at that mm -hmm. at that uh, angle and depth. Mm -hmm. But you can reduce to get like if you want the colors to be you know the same you can adjust that gain and make an adjustment for that will that will that affect the um you know seeing anything that shouldn't be there i don't think it should affect anything. no no okay no actually the the uh if the gain is turned down a little bit it makes it a little bit easier to identify the bright streaks of emboli that are coming by mm -hmm. um, again this was a, just a baseline signal so um sure. the amplitude of those m modes are important to see if you are uh, obtaining a quality signal or if adjustment is needed. Uh, sometimes if you do see the amplitude diminish, it, it's simple as uh, adjusting the angle of the probe to get a be better angle of incination to be able to, to receive the blood flow. But to really kind of get an idea of the perfusion, if you look at the spectral waveform in those uh, mean velocity flows, that really gives you an idea of what the perfusion actually is at that segment of the vessel that you're listening to. Okay, very so good. So you're using both the spectral waveform and the M mode to help determine the overall perfusion. It's not just one or the other. And in this case, so this is the this is the spectral uh, the top and down below is the uh is the is the flow. Exactly, yes. Okay. Like I said, I'm a we're perfusionist, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you want to go back right and track. show you our brain? Okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. Okay. So this is the, the moment in the procedure where uh, the right and left common carotid cannulations were happening. Um, so selective cannulation. The below images show large changes in the right and middle cerebral, right and left middle cerebral artery velocity spectrum during the cannulation process for cerebral perfusion. So these, these two um, video clips here, are very interesting in the sense that this is a very sensitive part of the exam where you're establishing cerebral perfusion. And so when you click and play these videos, it's showing the, the exact moment in time where the cannulas were turned on and begin providing uh, cerebral blood flow. So like Josh's case where they, they were placing the cannulas, um, you see that there's no blood flow up to the brain, but as soon as they turn on that right carotid artery cannula, you can see that influx of blood flow immediately and mm -hmm. determine whether the direction or collateralization was happening. And uh, also within that, you can see some emboli streaks going by, which are mm -hmm. likely air emboli due to the cannulation. And uh, important at this particular moment of the procedure is to determine that there's adequate stable perfusion um, throughout that, that can be obtained throughout the, the rest of the procedure itself. And so if you go to the very right video, uh, what happened shortly afterwards is we noticed a little bit of asymmetrical perfusion from one side to the other. So the right side had a little bit elevated perfusion, which is uh, concerning for hyperperfusion. Um, and that kind of goes down to, to where the patient's at in the autoregulation process of the brain and how well that brain is receiving okay. that. A cerebral perfusion bypass. Let me get this so, up, and I want you to talk about that for a second. Let me pause the video. If I can get it to pause. Okay, there. Maybe I just need to blow it up. Okay. 
Okay. So are, where are so let's go over this, you know, when you say you you noticed some asymmetry. Where am I looking? On the top of the screen, you'll see a 13 mean centimeters a second versus a 37 mean centimeters a second. I see that. I okay. see 13. Right. Okay, so 13 and 37. Yes. So there we go. So there's one side. There's the left side, left MCA, right MCA. Yes, now I clearly see what you're talking about. Right. Here you were okay. talking about this big, in this image um, that's in the center of the screen, that hyperemia you were talking about. Now that's just the initial influx that's of the, the blood okay. flow. And so imagine the brain just moments before that cannula was turned on was receiving zero blood flow at all. Right. So the brain is likely at that point saying, hey, there's no blood flow to the brain. I'm gonna expand my vessels as wide as I can get them. I'm gonna do whatever I can to be able to get blood flow up here because this is obviously not a correct thing to be happening for the body. So when that cannula is initially turned on, uh, it comes down to the, the flow rate that's happening from the cannula and how much that brain is gonna receive blood flow at that point in time. And when mm -hmm. that cannula is turned on, that's when we can notice maybe a little bit of auto-regulation of the brain setting in by the brain saying, okay, I'm getting blood flow again. We need to stabilize this blood flow so we can adequately perfuse this organ um, and, and, and it will adjust accordingly depending on the patient's specific situation. Gotcha. That, so, that makes like, a lot of sense. And here what we're seeing is this flow in the left side much lower than the flow in the right side. The signal itself looks obviously very different and the, uh, uh, the velocities are obviously very different. Right, and so essentially immediately afterwards, uh, having a little bit of an increase in blood flow isn't necessarily an abnormal urgent thing, but what we wanna prevent is long-term hyperperfusion uh, causing abnormal effects to the brain over a long period of time. And so it was communicated to the OR team that we are noticing an asymmetrical difference from the right side of the brain to the left side, as far as perfusion goes. And uh, we uh, spoke with the perfusionist to see if there's any type of pump adjustment to help prevent that hyperperfusion setting in on the right hemisphere. And if you go to the next slide, it'll show the, um, the stable Is perfusion this blood flow. No, I have to keep going. There you go. There you go. So now you can see that the right side has gone down and, and there's a lot more symmetrical um, blood flow yes. from one side to the other. Yeah. And I have to pause it is what I have to do to make it so it doesn't just shut off. So there you go. So yeah, so now 19 Perfect. on Thank the left, you. 15 on the right, much more, mm -hmm. you know, almost equal or more equal certainly than they were. That makes a lot of sense. Right, and so even on the right side, how we see on the M mode on the bottom there, it looks like that is almost like a weaker signal. Uh, what was done shortly afterwards is just a slight uh, repositioning from um, the Novogad machine itself, not having to go up to the patient at bedside, but we actually repositioned uh, the signal to be able to get a better signal uh, in the M mode itself. But what we can still gather from this information Oops. is that the MCAs are both normally directed, and so are the ACAs with the red and the blue. And then being able to monitor the mean velocity of both right and left and keeping them symmetrical lets us and the OR team know that throughout the, the rest of the, this was a, a six plus hour procedure, um, that there is adequate perfusion happening to the brain that's uninterrupted and remaining stable the whole time.
And I think that is a very important point that I think you should uh, bring up is that you have that ability to, um, let's see if I can get this slide to stop doing this, I'm sorry. Uh, you have the ability to make micro adjustments to the uh, probes from the control deck. You don't have to go up to the head and make adjustments to the angle of your uh, probes. Is that, that, that I'm, am I getting that correct? You're getting that 100% correct. So basically the robot's gonna find the temporal windows and the MCAs automatically, and then the, um, the operator can just make micro adjustments on the screen versus having to actually hold the probe next to the head. Right, gotcha. Okay, let me let you, uh, let me let you wrap. I'm so sorry to do this, but just we have, uh, we have time constraints. So let's go ahead sure. and get through all the slides. This has been an incredible, we should, probably should have spent two hours on it, uh, but I do wanna finish these slides because I think there's some just incredible information here. Yeah, if you go back one slide, that's actually the, the final slide for that case. Uh, so this is, um, oh, one more slide back, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was a, port, a point in uh, where we're, we're nearing the end of the case and uh, they're removing uh, the clamps and, and reestablishing uh, blood flow up to the brain while they're removing um, the perfusion bypass. And so if you play the video that says left carotid clamp, we can see the moment in time where that clamp is applied and we can see instantaneous changes to blood flow. So right at the end of that four second clip there, we see on the left side that there's an immediate drop in blood flow and change in the M mode presentation. This is, uh, let me pause it. Let me do it this way. Tell me when to stop. Right stop. there. There. Right there is good. So we can see uh, on the M mode on the left MCA there that the red and the blue completely disappears as soon as that clamp is placed. And actually an interesting finding here is at the end of that blue M mode line, we see a streak of red suggesting that there could be collateralization instantaneously happening. And on the right MCA, we actually see a little, just at the very end, a little decrease in the amount of blood flow happening to the right MCA, which could suggest a type of collateralization process where the, the, the pressure in the brain is different from one side to the other. And so due to the pressure gradient, the blood flow is gonna go from a high pressure to a low pressure. And since that left MCA or the left carotid artery was clamped, there's less pressure in the left MCA. So blood on the right side of the hemisphere is gonna start shunting over to the left side of the brain to provide that flow. And if so you we're go talking to the next about slide, right here, you're saying right correct. here in this spot and yep. in this spot correspondingly. Well, if you go up to where or the over. spectral waveform is, okay, go up, up here. to where, there is where the, the clamp is placed, but on the right MCA, you can see how there's a slight decrease in flow right at here. the very end there. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And so that's suggesting that there is collateralization happening almost at the same exact point that that carotid clamp was placed, gotcha. which is, is essential information uh, quick information that we can get immediately with TCD during a sensitive maneuver like this that's affecting the cerebral perfusion. If okay. we go to the next slide or the, the next video, it shows um, uh, a, a video clip two minutes after this clamp was placed. We see that there is perfusion back to the left MCA. We lost the slides. Okay. Um, 
probably me. Hold on. I'm resharing with the iMac. Okay. Slides back. Okay, there you go. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, now we're, that's okay. We're seeing perfusion to the left and the right MCA, both, both symmetrical now. Uh, what we see on the left MCA in the M mode is the loss of that blue band, but mm -hmm. we are seeing um, the filling into the left MCA uh, adequately. And so that's suggesting that there is collateralization, adequate collateralization happening within the circle of Willis, suggesting that the circle of Willis is complete and allowing um, flow to shunt from the left to the right hemisphere or posterior to anterior hemisphere as well. And the reason for that, again, is because you see this is blue, so it's going away from away. the probe. But on this side, you've lost the blue band, but it's replaced with a red band, so it is coming towards the probe. Is that, is that basically, do I have it right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. <laughs> There you go. Nice job. <laughs> okay. Uh, next slide, please. And it's going to do this again until I, uh, I, you know, I'll tell you what. I, I have, uh, this has been a, that, you guys have been great, but this has been a serious challenge for me today. So let me go to the next slide. That's this one. Yeah. And from current, there you go. Yeah, so the next slide is again, the, the right carotid clamp is removed and we see the return of the normal uh, M mode and flow directions within the circle of Willis with the red and the blue uh, M mode presentation. The patient is being um, warmed up now. So we're seeing a slight increase in the perfusion up to the brain as they're beginning to um, return normal cardiac function to the patient. And then on the right side is a uh, return to normal cardiac function uh, the aortic arch is, has been replaced now with a synthetic graft, and it is showing stable, uh, clear uh, waveforms with good upstroke and no signs of any mm -hmm. abnormal flow going up to the brain. The I only interesting finding with this is if you compare uh, the return of normal cardiac function slide to the baseline slide that we had before the procedure took place, we see a slight increase in actually the pulsatility. So normal pulsatility is from 0.8 to 1.2, uh, with these on both sides, we're seeing about a 1.5, so a borderline increase, uh, but that was a suggestive of the fact that now the aortic arch is a synthetic graft with multiple large artery uh, synthetic graft branches coming off of it, and due to the um, uh, essentially not having the same resiliency as a, as a normal vessel versus a synthetic graft could potentially increase the pulsatility index. Uh, which isn't necessarily an abnormal finding, but something to just note as you move forward and follow up with this patient postoperatively. Okay. And I, I don't know why it keeps going back to this video. I'm having a really, uh, sorry about that again. So let me go to the next slide if I can. Sure. I'm, I'm doing the best I can do. I don't know why. That's all the videos now, Joe. So the rest are just okay. still shot images. So it should be smooth sailing. Okay. And, um, uh, okay, we just have to keep it like this and we're gonna, uh, the slide will be a little smaller, but I still think viewable. Okay. Josh, are you able to speak to this one? I think the next couple of examples are, are um, a little bit um, shorter. Uh, this is just an example of a common carotid artery graft. So the um, common, the common carotid artery 
Um, I think it was a replacement of the craft, which was um, compromised or, or obstructed. And so you can see in that very first image um, below there on the left side of the screen, you have your left um, MCA, which um, re represents a normal waveform. Um, in the MO, where you see kind of a discontinuation of the band itself, those darker spots are what we call brewy, and those are associated with um, typically with increased flow, um, sometimes with um, stenoses or, or narrowing. In, the, in this case, um, the left side has elevated flow because it's uh, compensatory um, to the right side. And you can see on the right side, the waveform is, is lower and dampened, which means that that right uh, rotted graft was obstructed. Um, during this procedure, I believe this was a, a, a dual um, surgical case where they did a cabbage and a replacement of this graft. And so the patient was on bypass. That's um, just an example to show what bypass flow looks like, which, which we did see in the previous cases. Um, and then post-operatively, we see normalization of, of both sides. And so um, for all the, the various um, reasons we've mentioned prior to this about why you want to monitor. Um, in this case, particularly, uh, you'd probably be more concerned about emboli because um, they're dealing with the, the carotid itself, um, as well as the flow. Um, but, you know, a, a large shower of emboli and changes in flow would be of concern. In this particular uh, procedure, it went without a hitch. Um, it, it was, you know, there were no side effects of the procedure itself other than the fact that the, the artery uh, returned to normal and you can see that. Mm -hmm. And so just to point out, I mean, if you're not monitoring the blood flow, we, we, we really just, um, I don't, I don't want to say assume because you know, they clean the artery out, clean the artery out or they replace the artery. Um, and so they know that the flow is, is you know, normal and, and the artery is normal or the graft is normal. Um, but you can have complications. You can have uh, plaque growth, you can have reobstruction, reocclusion, um, and you don't find that out unless you're monitoring um, with transurinal Doppler because it's the only real-time method. You would have to get subsequent imaging, again, which isn't routinely performed unless there's an issue. In, right. Let's go to full screen, everybody. Uh, go to go to take the slides down for a second, and let's just go ahead and and, and discuss this real quick. I think that's a very good point uh, that you're bringing up. Is that Again, we don't know what we don't know, right? That's 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 the the primary problem is we don't know what we don't know, and that's always going to be uh, the uh, reality of of this. So I think that you know it has uh, a lot of a lot of uh, value, and we should I think use it. Of course, you know, cardi uh, cor carotid surgery isn't necessarily in our bailiwick. I see the value of it, certainly. I think we want to talk about that. Uh, but, you know, I'm really interested in this, in the use uh, of cardiac surgery, and would like to see, you know, obviously more of that. But, um, you know, again, in deference to time, I think, uh, Josh, if we could wrap this up, I'd appreciate it very much. I have to, you know, again, I have to be compliant, and we're already 15 minutes, you know, into this. So, if we could just maybe go quickly through the rest of these slides, it would be appreciated. Yeah, definitely. You can, um, yeah, again, so this isn't a, a cardiac case. It's, it's well, I get, sometimes they may use perfusion, but this is uh, during a, a transcarotid periodic revascularization. Just 
Again, um, like the previous cases, uh, there there were some issues during the during the case, um, which show reversal uh, of, of the carotid, um, which you can see in that first slide. Um, again, you, you see the flow changes, and then we can you know alert the team, and then they um, adjust things properly. Um, and uh, I guess we were on to the next slide here. So um, just some highlights of some existing literature. Over the last year, there's been uh, quite a few papers that have been published mm -hmm. right here, yeah. um, mm -hmm. out of Liverpool. Um, we have a nice uh, letter that was was um, published showing showing their experience, um, which we just showed with the case. Well, I can um, tell you Dr. Lumsden is, and Dr. Gorami both, uh, are incredibly um, involved and believers in imaging, 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 imaging. We don't do enough imaging. Um, and I see you have the, the Methodist uh, papers on there. Uh, they do incredible work there with this. Um, I know they have that one with the CPR and seeing ineffective CPR with no cerebral blood flow. And then the, uh, oh, wow. the, the, uh, the faculty or the staff physician got involved and started really pumping on the chest. Um, and of course you saw really good cerebral blood flow at that point right. in time, but uh, very, very, very interesting. And I know, I, I'm assuming they're using it there. How do people, and let's just uh, do this if we can, I hate to cut you short, but I have to. How, do, uh, how does our audience reach out? How do we get a hold of people if we want to get an evaluation? What do, my, what do my audience do, whether they be here in the United States or whether they're here in Houston, in the United States, or anywhere in the world, what do they need to do to find out more about this device? You know what, they can always contact me and I'll point them in the right direction. They don't know how to contact state. you. None of us know how to contact Should you. I say my contact so, info? So what we'll do is, David, can we add to the comments in the video uh, uh, Mike's contact information after post-production? We will put it in the description okay. of the YouTube video so people good. that see that will get that. And I'll point them in the right direction. And they can always go to novasignal.com. Can you, uh, you guys have a website, right? It is novasignal.com. It is novasignal.com. See, I got it right. And <laughs> let me just pull that up if I can. I'm going to go to novasignal.com. Dot com, click go, and for the viewing audience, man, I really am glad nothing popped up on that iPad. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I was I was stressed, I was worried, but there you go. There's our website, and there's a convenient contact us button. They've got some real good information in here. I've looked at the site before, and uh, look at the end of the day, I think Perfusion. Just go ahead and take the slides down. Thanks. Um, I think Perfusion needs to get more involved with, uh, with this kind of technology. Right. Um, of course, we're not involved in TCAR. We're not involved in, in uh, 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 carotid surgery, generally speaking. But I think that for our cardiac surgery uh, platforms, I think we need to add this into our uh, tool chest, if right. you will, in order to provide better quality care because the more it's used,
the more that's sold, the more it becomes a standard of care, the more affordable it's going to become at the end of the day. That, that's right. And, um, you know, we, we, we want to make this towards to be the fifth vital sign. That way your cerebral blood flow like is just, uh, it's just measured every time. It um, should be the, the first doctor. vital sign at the right. end of the day. Like I said, you can cut somebody's kidneys out. Right. Okay. And you Can't can take them this. to somebody, I'll put them on ice and take them to somebody else. You can take the heart out, you know, with some cardioplegia, you got four hours before you have to stick it into somebody else. Right. It's very hard to go four hours without blood flow to the brain. You can't do it. It's very hard to go four minutes. You know, four minutes is the limit, right? Yeah. But at minute three and at minute two and at minute one, injury is occurring. It may not be complete brain death, but I can tell you right now, two minutes without blood flow at normothermia for any reason is probably not going to result in a great outcome for you neurologically. Right. So I think that we really need to pay better attention to what's going on. And when we're doing bypass surgery with so many things that can happen during that time, this just seems like, I'm going to say it, a no-brainer. We should be monitoring <laughs> blood flow to the no brain. No pun intended, huh? No pun intended, I think so. <laughs> and, and if anyone is interested, we're always happy to share information. We're always happy to get a demo or eval out. Absolutely. Okay, Josh uh, and uh, Matthew, Mike with Thank Nova you. Signal. This has been excellent. We've gone 20 minutes over. I hope everybody doesn't mind. Thank you for your patience and understanding. Information will be in the description on the uh, channel. And uh, anyone has any questions, please email me and I will forward those emails on to Josh, Matthew, and Mike uh, as, uh, as, as asked or as it's appropriate. Thank you all very much. Have a good day. Thank you, Josh and Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.